When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Heretics. That's right. I'm sure a lot of you have wondered why there is no longer a podcast called On the Edge with Andrew Gold in your, uh, what does one call it? A, a library? Your podcast library? I don't know. I just went with the change. It's been three and a half years. I came to realize that On the Edge doesn't necessarily encapsulate very much. I suppose it has this element of fringiness, but I've noticed that over the years, that although I interview people who have been in fringy situations, that the whole point is that most of the time they're not anymore. This is not documentaries where Louis Theroux goes and meets Nazis. This is um, a podcast where I talk to somebody who once was uh, a Nazi or, or more likely a Scientologist or something like that. And there's also been a move that I'm trying to push towards topics that really interest me as I did at the very beginning of this podcast. Uh, and that's heretics. That's people who uh, stand up and, and say things that go against the modern orthodoxy. They, they might be wrong. What do I know? But they're interesting people, at least. Sometimes that might be a cult defector. And for the coming months, there will still be... Basically, look, the YouTube channel has been split into two. There's two channels now. The main channel... I know you guys don't care about YouTube. This is the audio podcast after all. But this is what's happening. The YouTube channel, the main channel that's got nearly 300,000 subscribers, that is going to be sort of the celebrity-based stuff. And I know a lot of you poo-poo that and you turn your nose up at it, but sometimes there's really interesting ones, like that recent one with uh, Vanessa Gregoriadis about the injections that the celebrities are getting to, to stay thin. I think that's fascinating. So sometimes we'll be putting in topics from there, which I think are really interesting, but more and more, if it does well, the new YouTube channel called Heretics, which in its first week has 10,000 subscribers, if that starts to do better and better and starts to basically pay for itself, I'm giving you a, an insight into how the sausage is made, then there'll be more and more episodes from that. For now, it's going to be a mixture of these two, which I think is quite nice as well to be able to go up and down, move around and shake it all about. Uh, I hope you guys like the Heretics uh, branding, the name, the title, and everything about it. And um, Really, today is a, is a great example. It's Peter Boghossian, who is a famous street epistemologist. He goes around and he does these great YouTube videos, so do go follow him on YouTube, just Peter Boghossian. Uh, it might be Dr. Peter Boghossian on his YouTube. He is a former university professor who now uh, goes onto the streets and asks people to stand uh, on these different markers on the street that say, you know, strongly agree uh, up to strongly disagree, basically. And you have to stand at the place where you agree with whatever. So, And then he'll say a statement. Trans people are this or that. Israel and Palestine should do these things. Basically, things that are important to the culture. And he'll have two different people and they'll stand in different places. And he says, hey, talk to each other. What's going on? He's worried about of binary thinking, I suppose. And we talked today about Israel and Hamas at the start because this was filmed just while there was the big Palestine protests outside of the room. And then we move on to certain issues around gender, around uh, cancel culture, and also aliens. We get in some alien chats towards the end. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Well, one of the, what is it, like the 300th episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold, but the first true audio episode of heretics 
Uh, there'll be plenty more coming up, of course. They won't all be sort of anti-woke as this one is, although there are a couple more to come out that I filmed at the Battle of Ideas, which was this sort of anti-woke kind of place. I mean, they don't call themselves that. They call themselves the Battle of Ideas. But it is a lot of that. But I'm going to soon have a lot more in-person, high-quality uh, videos with people who are completely different, but are just heretics. So hope you'll enjoy that. But now... Well, I guess that doesn't work anymore. You're a heretic... I'll have to figure this one out, won't I? With Peter Bogosian. Peter Bogosian, you're joining me today. We are at the Battle of Ideas, and it's a bit of an interesting, weird, strange one because just outside there are, what would you say, thousands or tens of thousands of people? Yeah. What's going on outside at the moment? There is a rally for Palestinians, and specifically about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, and and what are your thoughts as to the motivations of many of the people there? Well, it's interesting you should ask because we actually asked many of the people. My uh, friend Reed and I are doing videos here, among other things, in London. And we actually asked what what they wanted. Like, So we went to Speaker's Corner. Uh, we've been to two rallies so far. This is the third, but we have the battle of ideas, so we're not there. And we actually ask people what they want. Most people do not have a solution to the problem. I don't know if it's many or most, but a lot of people say, will say, we want peace and justice. And then when you ask them what peace is, so they traffic in the, in the meanings of different, the different meanings of the terms. They mean something very different by peace and justice than what you and I mean. Okay. Well, let's start them with what we mean. And then what do they mean? Well, what do you mean when I say peace? Uh, people not uh, arguing with one another. Yeah, people getting along, not killing each other. Uh, what, what do you What do you mean by justice? Um, I suppose if someone's killed someone, you want to put them in prison. Is that Is that what I mean? I think I mean that. Well, yeah, they're different. So, without being overly, I don't know. Do you want me to be overly philosophical? Go on. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, there are different types of justice: retributive justice, you know, punishment; distributive justice. Uh, the in the history of Western intellectual thought, it starts with Socrates and the Republic, books one through three of the Republic. What's just? What is justice? And that question continues. You know, is justice paying your debts? Is like, what is justice? It continues in that tradition up to John Rawls in the seventies, when John Rawls talks about justice as fairness. So, a just society. My view is that a just society has to be a fair society. So, how do we create conditions? in the society to make it more fair. We can talk about that. I have, I think the right is not correct. I think the left is not correct. Um, I think that we've lost sight of the bigger picture, but even that conversation diverges significantly from what many of the people outside mean when they say justice. And the reason I know that is because we've gone on the streets and we've asked them, we've asked our, and we have it on film, we've asked the CAF. So they mean, some kind of remediation of past injustice. They mean a kind of, um, Palestinians have been living under the boot of the Israelis for so long, and now it's time for justice, either to turn the tables or from the river to the sea. So they mean something very different by justice. But unless you actually ask them that, you can't assume that your conception of justice and their conception of justice is the same. And again, that has nothing to do with Israelis or Palestine or 
Jews or anything. It's just figuring out what people mean when they use words. And that's not an academic thing too. It's just like, what do you mean when you say justice? And so when you've spoken to these people, you're ascertaining that they mean to, are we, are we saying to kill Jewish people to get rid some of Some do. Some mean that for sure. Our, our cab driver was pretty explicit about that. Others do not. Others mean a two-state solution or others mean kind of some kind of retribution for previous injustices suffered by Palestinians. But again, the only way you would know that is if you actually ask them, which is why I wrote the book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, how to figure out what people mean by just asking them questions. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you think that we rely too often on on slogans and we don't actually think through, I mean, from the river to the sea, do you think most people really have thought about what that means when pro-Palestinian people say that? It's a good question. I don't know. I'm no expert in the Middle East at all. And as a general rule, I avoid talking about things that are outside my area of expertise. I don't have a solution to the problem. If I'm forced, I would say two-state solution, but I don't really know. I'm no expert at, at all. And that's putting it mildly. But I do, I am interested in, in the way people talk. I am interested in what people believe. I'm extremely interested. One of my research areas is why someone changes their mind. What causes people to change their mind? What is an intervention on a personal level? What is a macro intervention on a societal level? And how do we get people to rethink either to rethink some of the positions they hold or to doubt some of the positions they hold so they become less confident and more humble? And how do we get people to start listening to each other again and talking to each other again? It's such a complicated one because obviously if we talk about those people out on the street right now, I imagine there's such a variation in a variety. I'm positive that's true. Yeah. And so, and, and some must think, well, hang on, you don't speak for me. You're saying something. I'm trying to say something much more nuanced and you're right. really going for it. How do you, when you go and speak to these people and you spoke to them in the last few days a little bit, did you attempt to change minds a bit? Did you, and, and how could you have success with that? Yeah, I attempted to instill doubt in people. So no matter where, so we we put mats on the, the Stratford Station or uh, Speaker's Corner or Regent's Park and the mats strongly disagree, disagree, slightly disagree, neutral, and on the other side agree. And where, where wherever they'll stand, I'll I'll try to I'll ask them well, what would it take. So let's say they stand on the slightly disagree. Well, what would it take to move you to the neutral? There should be a two state solution. Okay, so they stand on the slightly disagree. What would it take to move you one map, just one, to the agree? Just one map. What would it take to move you to the neutral? And one of the things we found, we just released this video, so you can watch it yourself. But one of the things we find, if we have somebody, well, we did this with the two state solution. There should be a two-state solution. One person went to agree, one person went to disagree. And then we asked them to write down their best reason. What's your best reason for believing that? And then we asked the person opposite them to guess what their best reason was. And they couldn't guess it. They didn't even know why someone would believe that. That will show you, if nothing else will demonstrate the difficulty of this problem. It's not even an incommensurable problem. It doesn't even rise to the level of being incommensurable because nobody understands why anybody believes anything. Is that of course, what, we've done that to ourselves. But is that like, I mean, is that what empathy should be? Is empathy, I've, I've been thinking about this myself. People always talk about, I'm so empathetic. And often they mean they get very sad when something happens to their in-tribe. Is, is true empathy about being able to appreciate the, the other side? Is that what empathy is? Should ask Paul Bloom that question. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure empathy, maybe it's a useful heuristic or maybe it's a useful 
tool to help solve the problem, to be empathetic to the Israelis or to be empathetic the, to the Palestinians. I'm not, there's just so many accrued years of detestation. I'm not sure that empathy would be a useful tool in that. I think the first order of business would be to try to figure out why someone, what someone believes and why they hold the position, not agreeing with them, but like, well, why does someone believe Israel is, and I don't want to talk about this, this whole thing is too much on it. Like, well, why does someone believe that it's a, that Israel doesn't have a right to exist as a state? Why does someone believe it has a right to exist? And then to just do your best to figure out, okay, so you just heard him give the reasons. What did he say? Like, ask them to repeat the reasons back. Like, I think we're not, even remotely close to empathy yet. Like not even, we can't even, we don't even know the best reasons for why people would believe the most rudimentary things about the con the conflict of people with whom they disagree. Like we don't even, we're not even at that stage yet. <laughs> How do you even, yeah, it's, it's sort of that, is it Wittgenstein? Sort of if you could speak to a lion, it wouldn't under, understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could speak a lion, could speak English. Uh, it's almost that same thing. I grew up- Donald Davidson too, yeah. Right. I, I grew up in a Jewish family and obviously, but here's the thing, when something horrible happens in Palestine, we, we mourn as a family. We sit there going, oh no, you know, and, and part of that is also going, God, what, this is going to look so bad for us. I have to admit that's, that's oh my God, what's going to, and then part of that is that's a loss of life. And you see the images of, of children and babies and things. It's the worst thing ever. But I feel like there are people on both sides who, when those horrible things happen, the first thing they're thinking is, right, how can I use this politically and ideologically and beat the other side? Yeah, 100%. What is that? Well, it's a kind of tribalism. It's, um, I wish I could blame it on something as facile as a YouTube algorithm or, but it's, it's a conflict that has been going on for a long time. I'm, again, I'm not the person to have this with whom you should have sure. this guy. This is way outside my area mm -hmm. of expertise. I do find it to be very blunt with you. I do find it to be disheartening now that I've gone around and I've spoken to people, people carrying signs, people. And so I'll say to these people, okay, so what's your solution? What do you think should be done? Not, no idea. Compl not even the two states was on one state. Like, no, I, I don't know. It's complicated. Okay. Well, like, well, what do you mean? Like, so they feel strongly enough that they're holding a sign but they don't even have a vague notion. I think maybe what, again, and I'm hypothesizing, partially I'm inferring from what people have told me, but they want their elected leaders and the politicians to know that they support the Palestinians. And so they're out in mass. So public policy will change as a result of when they see people demonstrate. By the same token, I would think that they would have some idea of of how to have some kind of a meaningful solution to save life, some idea. And person after person, when we've gone to the rallies in Speaker's Corner, no clue. It's complicated, I don't know. I find that really infuriating. And, and it, it, it is just, you just have to ask one question further for the whole thing to fall apart. And that's, I guess it's a very human thing. We get very passionate and excited and we don't necessarily think things through. But I've also wondered the same thing. I think free Palestine is a very noble idea. Why shouldn't these people be free? And then you go, how? And, and I'm sitting there thinking, how? And people I know will be shouting at the screen now saying, oh, a two-state solution. Well, the two-state solution has been offered twice to Hamas. Secondly, it involves Israel pulling out. Well, they pulled out of Gaza and look what happens. So if you're the Israeli politician going, my only job is to look after the Israeli people. That's the only thing I care about. That's my one job I'm hired to do. The last thing you're going to do is pull out even further and from the West Bank, which is significantly larger than Gaza. That's, that's absolute madness. So that, that can't work. And a one-state solution obviously can't work because there's so much hatred between these two people. How could they possibly coexist together? 
So there has to be a solution, but I have no idea what that is. Well, you're asking the wrong guy. Yeah, well, well, what I can ask you though about is, I think, um, one of the people I've spoken about recently who got involved in this was Greta Thunberg. Yeah. And it's a similar thing with the climate change situation. I think most people, I mean, even if you don't agree with the, I think it's 97% of scientists about climate change, I just like the idea they're not being smoke in my face. And if there's a renewable, nice way of doing it, that's lovely and that's great. But obviously to change to a society like that, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of jobs. A lot of people, like a lot of people are going to suddenly be poor. Probably not Greta Thunberg, probably not me or, or you, but a lot of people. And it's another situation where if you're asking a question and if you actually ask another question, okay, Greta, how do we do this? Yeah. I've not heard her say that. So I want to, what I want to ask you as well is, is, is partly that and partly what's going on where she can put out something about Israel-Palestine and in the same photo have this thing about climate change as if they're somehow linked. Yeah, so so there's a lot to talk about there. The first thing is when someone tells you they don't know, I think a great response is thank you. Okay. thank Because that way they're not pretending to know things they don't know. So what's the solution to Israel? I don't know. That, you know what? That's actually a great answer. Because we have so many people who are suddenly experts on anything that's relevant to the 24-hour news cycle. They act as, as if they, they have PhDs in virology, immunology, Israel. Now everyone's an expert in the Israeli-Palestinian problem. People who never thought about it for two, two seconds. So there is a kind of um, amplified by social media and clicks, et cetera. So I, I think that's one thing that we need to be aware of is that we need to create cultures where people proportion the confidence in their beliefs to the evidence they have for those beliefs. And one of the ways to do that is when someone says, I don't know, is to say, that's a great, that's a great answer. Thanks for that. That's a great answer. Thanks mm -hmm. for not BSing me. Okay. Now back to the, the, the greater thing. So ideologies cohere. So usually you'd only need, I think it was Hitchens who said, if, if, if I know two, two beliefs that you have and I can infer a third, you're a very boring person. Yeah. You, so, so that, that means that your beliefs, because they cohere around an ideology, it's all, and, and given that not almost by definition, ideologies cannot be true in terms of being proportioned to the evidence. So people have extended the confidence in their beliefs beyond the warrant of the evidence. And so ideally it would be like a Pontalism painting. They'd be just, you would have different beliefs of different things based upon the evidence and then maybe that they would probably cohere in terms of a picture, but the picture wouldn't be an ideological coherence. It would be, of the painting, excuse me, it would be a coherence based upon evidence. So we formulated these beliefs based upon reason and evidence. And you know what? And that's why we ask people the question all the time, what would it take to move you one mat? If they say nothing, then the belief isn't formed on the basis of evidence. Because to change your mind about something means that there has to be a piece of evidence that would come in that would cause you to change your mind. And so when you, and Michael Schellenberger has written some great stuff, a very, very close friend of mine, you know, Apocalypse Never was a great book. And he's spoken at length about the idea that bracketing for a moment, anthropogenic global warming, climate change, if you just bracket that, what are some energy solutions and why should we a priori take some of those solutions off the table like nuclear. Mm. So um, those I so to answer your question, those ideologies cohere 
precisely because they're ideologies and they're not formed on the base of evidence. If they were formed on the if if they were formed on the base of evidence, then they wouldn't cohere unless you wanted to make the argument that there are certain ideologies that are just intrinsically true. But if that were the case, then they wouldn't be ideologies. Yeah. So the whole thing falls apart. And I suppose a lot of it is related to what what is being known, called intersectionality and, and postmodernism. Yeah. Uh, and that's how you end up with climate change, LGBT uh, and Palestine, which don't seem to work. Pal- I mean, an LGBT in Palestine doesn't. Yeah. Well, that certainly doesn't work. But you have to be careful with linking a, a postmodernism or what Helen Pluckers calls applied postmodernism into that that suite of worldviews, whatever you want to call it, Weltanschauung, however you want to term it. Um. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Yeah, how, how would you explain this? Like, Because I'm just thinking some of the audience will be totally, or these are new, completely new terms. Like, how would you explain this? Like, oh, what, the postmodernism? Yeah, I think incredulity, Leotard des- describes as incredulity toward meta-narratives. In other words, a, mer- a meta-narrative is something like, uh, you know, evolution, Christianity, these are grand overarching explanatory principles that explain 
explanatory mechanisms for phenomena, things about the world, things about what people believe. So there is no meta narrative in the postmodern view. There's just kind of individual or atomistic views that people hold about different things. So we need to be very mindful. We've made in the last, oh, I don't know, depending on how you define it, 40 years, 30 years, we've made a turn toward, uh, in philosophy, you call it a subjective turn, a turn toward subjectivity and a turn away from objectivity. And we've demeaned objectivity, we've demeaned truth, and we've replaced those things with subjectivity or um, ways of knowing or lived experience but lived experience will only get you so far. Lived experience is great when it comes to what you want to eat, what kind of music you want to listen to, or who you want to have intimate relationships with. But it's terrible in terms of ascertaining facts about the world. Why do you think that's be- become you know this turn towards subjectivity? Why do you think that's happened? Is there is it has it replaced religion in in a sense? And that's a four hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. But we have moved towards it, haven't we? I mean, I, I've said this, I keep saying this at the moment because one of the a very funny, it was, oh, I keep forgetting his name, Ryan Long, Joe Ryan Long, the comedian, Canadian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did a great one the other day about um, pretending to be an actor who has to decide whether he wants to post a pro Israel or a pro Hamas or pro Palestine mm. uh, Twitter post or whatever. And he's like, should I post this or who's going to agree with this? Mm. Let's see what the UN has to say. And the UN said trans lesbians are lesbians. That's right. what they had to say about right. the whole thing. Um, so what was coming on there? Oh, boy. <laughs> to quote something I said off camera to you, Florence Reed from Unheard says, we are living in a uniquely stupid age. Mm. This is a uniquely idiotic age that, in which we find ourselves. That's scary. It's, it's terrifying, especially, I think I heard that in our conversation with John Ravakey, especially when you talk about I'm going to anthropomorphize a little bit, if you don't mind, but AI being born into idiocy. (laughs) Presumably they were always idiots, right? Yeah, but this is, so so now we have large groups of people, including Supreme Court justices, pretending they don't know what a woman is. I mean, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and and I've got a lot of respect for religious people. A lot of religious people listen to this podcast, of course, but 20, 30 years ago, J.K. Rowling was getting abuse from religious people. Right. We mustn't forget that. Right. That's an interesting cultural turn, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a turn in the culture war. That's why I wonder if it's sort of replacing religion to an extent, because J.K. Rowling is at the center of that. Okay. So that's called the substitution hypothesis. I made a ton of videos about that. And a really good way, I think, to explain this is, have you seen Game of Thrones? No. Really, they used to help publish their books. Uh, dude, you're dead to me. But anyway, <laughs> in Game of Thrones, when 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 uh, th- there's old gods and new gods, but the only reason you need old, the only reason that the old gods you have new gods because belief in the old gods are fading. And so the question is: Is superstition and belief the default mode for human beings? And if that's the case, as Christianity went down, what replaced it? Well, it goes by different names. Wesley Yang calls it the successor ideology. Majit Nawaz from the island here calls it regressive leftism, applied postmodernism from Helen Pluckrose. Um, I don't know, wokeism, whatever you want to call it. I don't know if this is Dawkins told me this. We did this interview about and Shermer about the substitution hypothesis. I don't know if the substitution hypothesis is true. Dawkins told me he. He hopes it's not or his whole life's work would be wasted. <laughs> um, but but we definitely we definitely have a problem 
Now, we pretty much know what the problems are. People don't trust their institutions because they're not worth trusting. We've demeaned the meritocracy. I mean, we can run through the problems. People have done that at length. The question is, how do we, how do we solve those problems? Which is another four-hour podcast. If we have some sort of almost biological imperative. That's, to, that's correct. Yeah. We may. Superstition or something. We may. Yeah. It's so hard because I, I can hear almost people listening to this thinking, that's interesting, but I, I don't have any superstitions and things like that. And I, I would be interested to see what number of people that is, because I bet it's actually the majority, but I don't know. But pe people who are, warlords don't think they're warlords. Mm. People who are superstitious don't think that they're superstitious. They think that they have evidence for their beliefs. That's one of the things that I think that the atheist missed in the atheist Christian debates is that atheists would say, well, they have Christians or religious people in general, they have no evidence for the beliefs. But virtually no, nobody thinks they have no evidence for the things they believe. They think they have evidence, but people who don't adhere to that framework think that the evidence that they think they have is not sufficient to warrant belief in the claim. Certainly not sufficient to warrant strength of the belief in the claim. That's why putting people on those mats. Belief is not binary. You know, it's not on, off. It's not ones and zeros. There's a spectrum of belief. And part of the problem, it's an ancient problem, is that we find... I mean, even look at the terms, a person of conviction. We, we find that if somebody is a man of conviction, then that's a, that, that has a moral valence to it. It's like a positive moral thing. Whereas when I hear, hear someone is a, a person of conviction, I just think that's a person who doesn't change their mind when faced with competing evidence, mm. change their beliefs, you know. I think that. I respect people who can change their mind more. There's something Will Storr, I think it was said recently, but other people have said this, have been iterations of it for, forever. But I, I feel very you know, confident in my convictions, the ones I do hold at the moment. They all seem to be right to me, whether it be about uh, abortion or this or that, the topics of the day. Uh, and they all seem right. But I know that there's absolutely no way that I could be the one person in the world who is right about everything I right. think. So what are those things that are utterly wrong? And, and do you have them as well, Peter? Well, Yes, I do. But to, to go back to what you said, to linger on that, if you don't mind, why would they be convictions? Well, beliefs then. Oh, then they're beliefs, yeah. Yeah. So, they, so I, think if, I think we can improve our collective epistemic situation, our collective situation of, of knowledge, if we just got rid of thinking, got, if we just framed it in terms of beliefs instead of conviction. So yeah, I'm sure I, I have them. You know the the age old problem is if you know you have them, then why do you why don't you stop believing them? And the reason is because I don't I don't know what they are. Do you have an inkling? Huh? An inkling into which of your beliefs might might be most likely to be wrong? I do. Let, um, pause. Okay. I just want to finish this thought. So the 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 some things complicate that. Anything that has an identity level salience will complicate that. Like some. Okay. When it's you, important to your identity. Yeah. So you're less likely to revise a belief it has. And that's one of the things that we're teaching kids in, coll in colleges and K through 12 systems now is that they're better people because they hold a belief and this is part of your identity, the pronoun thing, whatever it is. And then this is really, this is really important for you. But yeah, do I have an inkling of what it is? Um, I have an inkling about how to think about the situation. Uh, but I, so, so here's how I think we should think about it. Part of the problem, I think that why so many people have been bamboozled by these ideas, ideas that are just clearly false, like 
every every outcome, every disparity outcome is due to systems or that's Kendi's idea or D'Angelo's idea of white fragility. You only have these beliefs because you're white or you believe this, you're fragile. No, I'm not. No. Okay. Well, and that proves you're racist. So these ideas are the kind of ideas that young kids would like tweens would call you know, accuse each other on the playground. Mm-hmm. Uh, ad hominem, huh? The ad hominem, aren't they? You uh, believe yeah, this because you're certain. That. There's a certain element of that, but they're just silly. And so I think the way to think about it is because we've extended the umbrella of rights to minorities, to animals, etc. I think one of the things that people do implicitly is they project into the future and extend the umbrella of rights. You know, whatever, like, and. I don't, I believe the trans, if you want to be trans and you're 18, that's great. You can undergo any procedure. I fully support you. I'm adhere to the principles of liberalism and democracy and you don't, you shouldn't be discriminated against, et cetera. I'm all on board with that. I think people are no but in that sentence. I think people extend that umbrella of rights and they keep extending it. And then they, they want to be on the right side of history. Hence that term, the right side of history. So I think that's one of the one of the prophylactics for falling into delusion. I think that there are I think that there are others, but yeah, I think if I were to guess, I would say um, it's a point I've raised before. But meat eating, mm-hmm. taking sentient life, uh, I would say um, a kind of um, action. I mean, I could. I don't really know if I knew I would change my my belief. That, that's one where you feel most like that might be the one where. In another life, in the future, I could look back and say, oh, that was the one where I, I, I came down on the wrong side of. Yeah. Yeah. Or I ba- I, I somehow made the calculus incorrectly in my head uh-huh. because I, I have Crohn's disease and I know that like when I eat sugars and carbs, I feel like sh- crap. Got it. And so I know that if I'm on a high protein, high fat diet, I feel better. But what is the cause of my, I mean, how many cows have I been, the deaths of how many cows have I been? Quite a few. Mm. So- I went veggie, and, and I used to think exactly. I used to say what you what you said. I used to think that's the one when I was eating meat. Oh, maybe that's not right. Maybe that's the one. Maybe it's no good that I'm helping this industry. I'm I'm not some righteous guy anyway. I also got a bit disgusted by the idea of like meat in my mouth. Here's another one I'll throw out to you. Mm. You have not you in particular, but people in this age have been too sensitive to people's feelings the kind of hypersensitivity that we have cultivated as a virtue in society has trapped people into ways of being and thinking about the world that does not lead to their flourishing and the flourishing of society. Yeah. Well, well that's it. Because I think it would be, I think some people think it's so simplistic, just everyone be nice. When I put out this poll on my YouTube channel, like, do you literally think that trans women are women? Right. 10% said they literally, literally do. And and that that seems, but a lot of the answers were, why does it matter? Just be kind. And as if it were that simple. And that's just historically, I mean, I, I imagine you would be thought of as kind if you were a member of the Nazi party. That would have been kind back then. Yeah, that's the other thing. Maybe we have, if there were a hierarchy of values, or maybe we've kind of misprioritized which values should be front-loaded and which values we should attempt to manifest. You know, if, if there's such a thing as a moral fact, I've recently become like the rest of the world. I have a vague passing interest in AGI, not too much, mm. but- and what's AGI for those who don't? Uh, artificial general intelligence. Mm. And so 
Sam Altman and others have said that we've made rather dr dramatic progress. I'm not talking about chat, chat GPT. I'm talking about some kind of a sentience or self-consciousness. Um, and it could be that there are moral facts. It could be that there are solutions to problems. Like think about chess, for example. Through artificial intelligence, we could, we've now, or Go, the game of Go, ancient Chinese game of mm -hmm. Go, we've solved problems that we, that for centuries, human beings, the smartest people, literally the smartest people have been unable to solve. But it could be that, and again, this is, to say this hypothetical, this is like <laughs> extremely hypothetical. It could be that we need some kind of general artificial intelligence to figure out our moral facts. There are moral facts, but we just can't apprehend them. And so we should be valuing certain things more than others. We should be prioritizing certain moral values. So this is when you said, what's an example of something I could be wrong about? That I've misprioritized my moral values. But you wouldn't trust it, would you? Because you'd, you'd, first you'd be thinking that the AGI has been built by humans. This was when I, I, asked, I asked Dawkins. So Dawkins said that the one thing we know about external extraterrestrial life is that it will be Darwinian. Yeah. And I said, but what about AI? And he said, well, that will be built by the Darwinian process. So it's still part of a Darwinian process. Uh, there's, our, our fingerprints will still be on the AI. So now if I put chat, I mean, there are people all the time put it, I think maybe you've even done this on Twitter. Was it you? Maybe I've seen some people do it. Uh, you ask uh, ChatGPT a question and it comes out with this very progressive answer. Right, correct. Yeah, so we don't trust it necessarily. Uh, and it, yeah, ChatGPT chat would be, be different from general artificial intelligence. Um, it, so so here's the problem. It's, it would be similar analogously, it would be similar to a being who claims to be omniscient. The only way you would know if that being was omniscient if you yourself were omniscient. So you would have to know everything to know if the being also knew everything. The problem is you you wouldn't really be positioned epistemically or otherwise to know if you knew everything. So you wouldn't know, there'd be no way to ascertain whether or not another being knew everything. But one thing is for sure, if we did develop some super intelligence or whatever one would want to call it, that, and it said, look, you've misprioritized your values. You've got to value this. You've got to think of this, or you've got to think of this. That would certainly be a reason for the conversation. But because you wouldn't, possess that, it would be kind of similar to mathematical proof. That's what moral reasoning is. You could reason to the moral propositions that the AGI told you that, that you should forward. I'm not saying that's true. I mean, maybe, maybe it says this is the whole thing is nonsense and there are no moral facts. I don't think there are. I, not that I know, but I, I really feel like, you know, there, 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 was a, there was a time where slavery seemed to be moral. I'm sure there are arguments that can be made that it is. Obviously, there were. Yeah. There are arguments for the Nazis as well, that they should kill all of me and my family. And I'm sure these were moral arguments that I vehemently disagree with. But I just think it's such a mess. Like, how could a computer decide, you know, it's that old thing, should you divert a train that's going to kill one person to yeah. kill 10 people? Yeah. What's the AI going to say is the factual right way of that? Well, that that would be, that's part of the issue, right? So you, you're, you're talking about a non-biologically... I don't want to call it life, but you, you, you're, it would, it, kill, it, just, it would kill the one, wouldn't it? Well, I don't know what it would do. Maybe it has access to a superior form of reasoning, but in, in a similar way that one would demonstrate a mathematical proof, it would lay out the reasoning. And it could be that the reasoning that it has for certain moral conclusions are reasonings that in spite of our best and brightest, we haven't come up with these ideas. Speaking about best and brightest, you spend a lot of time around students in uh, universities. Uh, yeah. You worked as an assistant professor. Was that what it what about? Well, what was I? Uh, God, it was so long ago. It was actually two years ago. Yeah. yeah. Philosophy, and then I quit. So, yeah. Well, you've spent a lot. I mean, you've gone to campuses as well and done your street epistemology with, with these people. 
is are you concerned um, about a lack of curiosity and, and nuance among among students? And and is any part of this? I mean, is it to, to do with a lack of experience or the fact that the human brain doesn't apparently fully develop until you know twenty five? I think the first line of of of, uh, of uh, metaphysics is familiar uh, All men desire to know. Socrates is famous. You know, wisdom begins in wonder. Or the idea that we want to know. I, I think that we have created institutions that have systematically pounded social Twitter is perfect example of this. The, you pay a price for wondering. You pay a price for, and that's the death of philosophy right there. If you want to engage an idea about, I don't, so even now thinking about what an example would be, I don't even want to say what an example would be <laughs> because, you know, so, so I mean, I'm thinking, I'll say it anyway, but I was thinking about, well, what if you wonder about, uh, you know, race and IQ? Well, what would be entailed by that if there are differences? Or what if you wonder about, you know, Peter Singer, the ethicist, uh, the Australian ethicist, what do you wonder about what we should, how society should treat people who have IQs below 25? Even wondering that, not professing to have answers, certain answers, very specific answers to that has detrimental social consequences and it could have detrimental professional consequences as well. So I, I, I think that we've created tools through social media. I think we've created academic institutions that have pounded wonder out of people and they've advanced certain narratives over other narratives and you get punished or rewarded based upon your beliefs. Just looking at uh, someone posted job job postings in philosophy and they're like philosophy of race philosophy and we know exactly what these we know exactly what the narrative is there is no like we know exact it's a construct i mean i can tell i could we could lay out the whole syllabus right now and so i i don't think it's that people now wonder less or they're less curious i think that they've abnegated a kind of responsibility to let their institutions think for them about very specific propositions usually moral propositions very specific ways of viewing the world, thinking about oppression and oppressive structures and, you know, systems being responsible for all of our problems. And so I think it's, it's like putty. Uh, it's replaced wonder, if you think about it. You know, it's just puttied that over uh, with st stopgap measures of understanding the world. I remember when I spoke with John McWhorter, yeah. he, I think he's wonderful and he's, yeah, John's great. The linguist and for those who don't know, you know, and, and he was talking about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Yeah. The yeah. idea uh, just for the, for the audience, anyone who doesn't know that different languages, if you learn them can give you a different sense of the world. And there is some evidence for it. If you, you know, that French people might describe a, um, a, a bridge as with masculine qualities because it's a masculine word there and in German, die Brücke is uh, feminine. So you might be, you see it as feminine, stylish and graceful rather than bold and imposing and all these kinds of things. And some people think there are certain tribes where they don't see, uh, they don't have left or right. They've got east, west, north and south instead, which is incredible because you look at a painting and it depends which way you're holding it uh, as to how you would describe it. It's a really remarkable thing. It's remarkable the human brain can do that. But a lot of the questions in academia are about whether that is, um, gives, gives these people superpowers, basically, if they have these amazing languages that we need to discover more about and they are, they just give you these amazing superpowers and it's great. And John McWhorter is a bit sceptical of all of that. And he said, if we're willing to accept that and look into that, then we have to at least wonder whether our own languages, such as English, 
are actually better because they've helped us to grow this kind of civilization and, and all of these kinds of things. And nobody wants to touch that. And I think that's a good example of what you're saying. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, it's also an example of you you can't both be, you can't simultaneously be a relativist and an egalitarian. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And so, so the we we live in, in one sense, we live in a hyper-egalitarian age where People are making claims that, oh, everything is equal, every system is equal, every culture is equal, every culture. Well, that's clearly nonsense, right? I mean, they, you could just look at banking structures or thinking about the ch- ch- charging of, um, I'm trying not to go down, I'm trying to <laughs> very consciously, tr- consciously trying not to go down that rabbit hole, but interest in Islamic societies and how they get around that because the surah is in the Quran, but, and, and hadith as well. But so I, I think, I think that's, Right. And I think we need to be, we need to be aware of the dangers of relativism in terms of leveling or critique against certain, you, you know, who, I, think, I think it was Sam Harris said, who, who am I not to judge? Mm-hmm. Who am I not to judge? To, by, by what privileged position can I step out of my society, my culture, my customs, my psychological predispositions, my moral instincts? Who am I not to make the judgment that the treatment of women is wrong? That the that the here I go again. I'm thinking about the rally outside, but I you know that the inheritance of a, a of a woman should be less than the man. The court trial of a of a you need different number. Like who, who who am I not to to make a judgment about that? Right. There's something Yasmin Yasmin Mohammed talks about. She's great. Yeah. Yeah, and she talks. You know, why is it? such a horrible thing when a white young child is abused, but when it happens to a Muslim child and something that, you know, Yasmin gets very teary-eyed just talking about, the, the West don't care because they say, oh no, that's religion and traditions and stuff. Let them do their thing. Yeah, Unveiled was a great book. I yes. can't recommend it highly enough, but that that it's not even, it's beyond the bigotry of low expectations. It's truly thinking that there's a different moral standard by which we should hold people who have a different color skin. And so maybe that goes back to your question about what are some of the things that I could be wrong about? Maybe I wasn't a harsh enough critic of other cultures and then, or, or, or other practices or other traditions. And of course, may, you know, maybe one should have ignored the social consequences more. Mm-hmm. The problem with some of those things, and I don't mean to be extra topical, I don't mean to kind of fall down this specific rabbit hole is that people think that there are certain like neocon policy implications predicated upon, you know, George Bush got this a lot, although he and Rumsfeld and his buddies actually were neocons, but that that you won't make a judgment about something because you think that implicit in that is U.S. military intervention or NATO or the West. Yeah, there's too much baggage. But it's a it's a very it's a very interesting time in which we live in that so many of us are completely held hostage to a minority of a minority of people. Last time I looked, it was eight percent of people who 
who are hardcore believers in this ideology, and there are others who are in the orbit of the ideology, but they're not as the progressive postmodern. Yeah, but the par- part, of, even part of the problem with that is you never really know who's who believes what because we've created a culture of fear in which no one will talk about what they actually believe. So we don't even know what people believe. So there, there, there. It's even worse than being held hostage to what a certain number. of people believe because you're held hostage to what you think they believe. Yeah. Well, this happens on the left. Of course, on the right as well. The I mean, right has humans. similar derangements. One, one place that I've seen it on the right is because I've uh, been, like, I keep talking about this today, so I shouldn't too much, but we can't say the word on YouTube, but PDF files, people who live, go around playgrounds and stuff, children, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Right. You can't, yeah. on the right won't let you even talk about it. Yeah. Even if talking about it will lead to fewer children being attacked. Because obviously you're talking about it, being, that's the only way to do it. We have to find a way for fewer kids to be attacked. But the right will be so like religiously, no, 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 just just kill them all. And you're like, okay, but you kill them all and then there's more. So we've got to actually do something. Or even, so that's another example of things that people don't want to talk about. You know, there, so some some people have put forward, I, I went to, to, not to throw the, the conversation to the toilet, if you will, but I went to Regent's Park to go to the bathroom and... Um, on the, the sign when we were doing street epistemology and the sign in the bathroom is at no adults, boys only. And I really had to go to the bathroom. And so I looked around, there was, there were no other bathrooms, right? like literally none. So I asked a, a woman who was there, you know, whenever I travel, I have to be just super conscious. I don't break the law. And the last thing I need is like that kind of accusation. But I, what am I supposed to do? Like, I really have to pee. Yeah. And so- I asked the woman, could you please, please make sure, and she, you know, she didn't know me. I think the accent helps a little bit, but can you please make sure that nobody walks in this bathroom for just 60 seconds? Yeah. And so she said, sure. But I, I do think that the whole, I, I don't want to say, because I don't want you to get demonetized, but the, but pee people. The, 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 pee, the pee word, I do think that there is a kind of, on the right, I think you're correct about that. I do think that there's a, a can I even say, G R O O M I N G. I think you can because it might be a makeup channel. Okay, <laughs> but, but right. not, not too much. But we've said right. Yeah, grooming. Uh, okay, so there's even that kind of narrative. So so it's it's interesting to me that many of the people and it's flipped because the left used to be the free speech people. Many people on the right won't even entertain conversations if it's not within something about which they 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 you know they have their own moral certitudes. They have their own taboos. They have their own things that they'll talk about, not talk about. Yeah. And I think that, I think part of it is the history because there has been a history. And I know people get very angry when I say this off the far left. I'm not talking about 95% of or 99% of people who are on the left, but the far left and allowing and enabling uh, that P word. Um, I was talking about it before, but there was an example. I mean, just in in Berlin, there was a big thing called the Kentner experiment. He was a big lefty Green Party and he paired up homeless boys with these people as their foster carers, as like a part of their strategy policy. The French, uh, some of the postmodernist thinkers were involved in enabling some of that. In South Park, there was that Nambla episode as well. Nambla, I don't know if it's even... It's the world of association. Yeah. So that has historic, there has been that issue on the left, but I still think it's like this this uh, trigger happy reflex from from the right to not even discuss how we can make this better. Yeah, it's interesting in this conversation, you know, everybody knows what it is, but we can't say it. It's like when people write SH exclamation point T. Yeah. Like literally everybody reading that knows what it is, but yet they don't do it. There's a kind of phoniness about that. 
Oh yeah. There's a kind of it's so sad. There's kind of fakeness. We're all faking. Like, what are we faking? Yeah. And what's a swear word anyway? Right. Yeah. I did. A, I did something with Dawkins. He, he on my podcast. He called Piers Morgan a fool. And I knew that would get a lot of views. And you and I were talking about it before. A lot of people on YouTube at the moment, views are down. And I, I've got a whole theory as to why that is. It's to do with mainstream news channels paying a lot of money to YouTube. But that's a whole conspiratorial rabbit hole for another day. Um, wait, what was my point? What was I saying? Oh, you were talking about uh, calling him a fool. Right. I put F star, 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 because I, I wanted to just keep the mystique a little bit. A lot of people were pissed off at me because they thought it would have been fuck, right? And they were like, well, it was only fool. Uh, and I just thought, how interesting that we had these different words and things and that fuck would have made it a better video somehow. And how would he have even called him a fuck? It's not a noun. Um, yeah. And again, John Matt I'm just fascinated by the way that swear words have changed. So yeah. it used to be hell and damnation and all these kinds of things were, and then it became bodily as we moved away from religion, so far and shit and stuff. And now it's only identity. Those are the ones you cannot say identity right. words. And there's one where there's a crossover, which is the C word. You can say yeah. it more in the UK. But in America, it's still- Yeah, you can. I was, I was actually in polite company and I heard that said twice by two different people <laughs> yesterday. But you would never say that in the it's US. It's because it's got identity yeah. uh, connotations in the US yeah. because it's a misogynist thing. In the UK, you call a guy that. So yeah. there is just bodily here. It's just yeah. bodily. It's, it's, fucking, it's the same thing over in America. Yeah. So so those were the F word yeah. for gay people. It's, and it's funny. Like, so- when, when I was teaching, I would say fucking shit. I never had a single complaint. Like never. I mean, and I yeah. was judicious and, but, but if you misgendered someone, like you said, or if you did, you, you could make other kinds of mistakes, but it's, it's interesting, but you know, Jonathan Haidt talks about that in terms of purity. Uh, I do, I do think McWhorter's work on, and I, we did it. I, I really like John. We did a nice podcast together. I do think that it's it helps people understand their own, if you, to borrow a term for their situatedness or the fact that there really are these arbitrary moral currents that run through society for what you shouldn't say and what you shouldn't say. But, you know, we all have those, those built into us. I think it was Ashcroft, former attorney general, who there was a statue that, you know, of, of a woman's breast. He wanted to cover the woman's breast up, but the camera, the cost was like $8,000 if men were pregnant. <laughs> You know, if this guy were born in the in Afghanistan, he would have been a Taliban. So, like, we we have this stuff, and certain people, a certain percentage of the population has these purity concepts more than others. But here's the thing: in one sense, I would argue that we need to mitigate against those impulses, especially as they bleed into the public square. But the problem is that if you have those impulses, you don't think that they should be mitigated, right? You 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 want to discharge them into the public arena. Yeah. And so that's, again, Socrates' question, a person doesn't want, but they don't think they lack. So if you don't think you lack it, like if, why, why would someone who doesn't, why would someone who thinks that, that you should cover the breast of the statue, which to me is completely insane, but it could be that they would say to me, well, you need to mitigate your impulses for kind of secularism, or you need to mitigate your your impulses. You, you, you want a kind of society in which perversity and depravity are ubiquitous and run wild, you know, to influence the youth, et cetera. Yeah. So that's why it's so important to have conversations and talk about how you rationally derive these values so we can live together in a society. I understand. I gather that those words that become sacred words are actually in the other hemisphere of the brain to language, yeah. which is why you see there's like a video on YouTube of Stephen Fry putting his hand in freezing water. And if he swears a lot, he's able to do it for longer because there's actually a different 
something, a physiological difference when he says a swear word to when yeah. he's not saying, when he can hold that hand longer. Yeah. And it's really interesting to think what arbitrary thing will be next, because now it's identity, it was bodily, it was religious. Oh, that's a kind, of sub, a kind of substitution hypothesis or an adjunct, a cousin of the substitution hypothesis. If the default is it has to be something, or well, what comes next? It seems like it has to be something. Yeah, I, seem, uh, I think like, what was it? Well, he, I said to John, what, what comes next? So if there is something, what's next? And he said, obviously, we can't ever know, but you know, what's a big thing? What could be big in a few decades? Climate change. Maybe you call someone a windmill or something. And you know, windmill isn't a bad thing. Yeah, I've, I've, I've hypothesized, this is my, my dear friend Michael Shermer said, don't, don't, don't tell me you're smart, make predictions. I have a very risky prediction. I think that the fascination with aliens is only going to grow. I think it's going to be something orthogonal to the current culture war. Uh, aliens, m my prediction is that they're going to be more alien sightings, more alien, huh. and Schellenberger's re reported on that. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating potential vein of the future culture war. I hope I'm right, because it certainly be an, a, a much nicer war. So then the words like the, you have like the M word and the S word, which would be like molder and scar. Oh, you're such a molder. You're yeah, such something a like that. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but but again, yeah, he, McWhorter's right. It's very hard to see because we all have, we, we both have a kind of cultural myopia about. Sure. But but the other thing is the future is notoriously difficult to predict. That's what makes it, yeah. <laughs> makes it the future. So we don't really know we, we don't really know. We, we can hypothesize and make educated guesses, but we don't really know. It's what Ricky Gervais said. He said, uh, you know, nobody knew, nobody could have predicted 10 years ago that in 10 years, the most offensive thing you could possibly say is women don't have penises. Yeah. That's, that's it. So we don't know what's going to be in another 10 years. So there we go. Where can we send people? Uh, do you want to, people go to your channel, that kind of thing? Yeah, oh, YouTube, P-E-T-E-R-B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N. I'm on Twitter, Peter Bogosian. I have an I'm executive director of the National Progress Alliance. So I have a nonprofit. So that's what supports this trip and it supports the videos that we do. So it's a 5013C tax, tax. Um, you can get a, 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 I don't know, what is it, refund or whatever it is on your taxes, but it's a, it's a nonprofit. I'm also a founding faculty member at the University of Austin, founding faculty fellow. So Hopefully I'll be in Austin. The university will be up next year and we'll be teaching as truth-based institution. Mm. And I go all around the world. I travel 11 months of the year with my friend, Reed Nicewonder, and we make videos and we do interviews and we have conversations with a wide range of people. So if you, if you like our content, uh, if you, it's, it's nonpartisan. It just helps people think through issues and clarify issues. And yeah, we do talk about controversial things like the Israeli-Palestinian situation, but I do my best when I facilitate those dialogues to try to understand what people are saying. And when the viewers watch that, they'll know, oh, okay, this is what someone means by justice.
Thank you, Peter Bogosian, for coming on the show. What a pleasure, really. He's a big name in that kind of industry. Go and check out his YouTube, Dr. Peter Bogosian. Just type that into YouTube. You'll find that. See what he's up to. See some of those really cool videos that he makes. I'll be in one of them, I think, in January or so. We might film one. I don't know if that will necessarily happen, but we've uh, had preliminary discussions about it. And uh, I hope you enjoy what's coming up on Heretics as we go forward. 